0: I start holding my because Kai said I'm inconsistent when I talk into the mic. And he's right.
1: Not just when you're talking to the mic,
0: just more generally.
1: Exactly. Inconsistency is a virtue. David Cunliffe remains about as popular in the
2: Labour caucus as a pussycat at Gareth Morgan's house. Look, this is a la la budget when my eyebrow goes up. It's a joke. The police still arrest criminals in New Zealand. I've tried cannabis prohibition for the past 40
1: years. The fact is, that was a boring, useless speech.
0: What's <laughs> up, sweetie? I'm getting the... Access. Mr Singer, they say a week is a long time in politics. Hello and welcome back to the Iron Duke podcast, your weekly recap of all things policy and politics, where we run you through our peaks and our pits, interesting bits, and anything that fits from Aotearoa and around the globe. I'm Maddie Burgess Smith, and excitingly, I am joined today by not my usual co host, the one and only Byron Terrace. Instead, I have the Iron Duke himself, Mr. Phil O'Reilly.
1: I'd like to be where Byron is, actually. I, he's in Dublin right now, King Beer, and that's something that's really.
0: And look, and you're you're here in Iron Check Studios.
1: Yeah. I'd rather be drinking beer in Dublin, to be fair. Anyway, I'll hopefully get a chance to do some of that later in the year.
0: Phil and I this week are going to cover off Transmission Gully, the government's cost of living package. We're also going to talk through some wasteful spending we've come across this week in and around tourism, and Phil's going to give us a run-through of Ukraine. Phil, start us off. What's your peak of the week?
1: Oh, Transmission Gully. Isn't it fantastic? I mean, for those of you who are Wellingtonians and might have driven it over the weekend, It's dramatic. Uh, inspiring piece of road. Actually, it really redefines what Wellington is as you drive into it now. It's amazing mm. to drive through those those majestic sort of hills. It's, it's taken so long to get done. It's just ridiculous. And you get just north of Mackay's Crossing and you run out of road again and you're back to the goat track mm. uh, and, and you can see the new roads being built. But I just wish we would get on and do some more of that stuff. It's not an evil thing to build a road. Uh, and, and we should be celebrating the fact that we can drive hydrogen cars or electric cars or petrol cars for the time being, or hybrids on it, and we should just get on. And it, one of the really great things about it, what happened this weekend was you saw all the people out there just trying it out with mm. families and having a great time. So there it is. I, you know, I just I, I love the fact that it's here. It's a great asset, not just for Wellington, but for the whole of New Zealand. Bring it on, bring us some more.
0: I think it provides an awesome gateway into the city. It says Wellington is a city. It, is, it is, a, is a world-renowned capital city, and it's got a road that links to it. My concern around Transmission Gully is it was such a failure of a PPP, but that's not to say all PPPs are failures. And I'm worried that the government is going to continue to point back to this example when we start to talk about different ways and innovative ways that we fund and finance some of our country's largest infrastructure projects.
1: Public-private partnerships uh, is, a, is a real thing for the left. They hate them. I've seen this in forums all around the world where trade unions, uh, left-wing political parties, for some reason it's some sort of worse-than-the-devil poison. Mm. And you're seeing a bit of that play out here. You know, was it a failure of a PPP? You know, I actually don't know because nobody's told me who is not interested in telling me their political story. So great the point. government's had a great fun in saying it's a failure and therefore PPPs don't work. Well, I, I don't even know if it is. I don't know whose fault it was that it took so long or it cost so much more. I'm certainly not certain to, to my mind that it was the private sector actors there. And to your point, I'm not at all certain. In fact, I'm very certain that, that it's not the case, that PPPs won't work elsewhere. So, you know, this we need to get rid of the politics of this, and I hope organisations like the Infrastructure Commission and others will help us to depoliticise this and to work out you know, what does it take, what is the right place for the private sector in these things, what is the right place for the public sector, because all around the world you're seeing these kinds of arrangements go on. So Mm -hmm. to say that we alone don't need them or they're evil just for us is just ridiculous.
0: Well look, speaking of massive government spending, leads me well to my pick of the week, which was the huge announcement from the government on their cost of living package. Uh, Basically we're looking at increases like 360,000 families getting on average $109 more per week. So last Friday we saw minimum wage go up to 21.20. We've now got the second highest minimum wage in the OECD, which I think is something to be celebrated. Main benefit sure. rates. Yeah, I think so. Okay. It's expensive to live here, so you gotta gotta be paid a lot. And you know, it affects three hundred thousand workers across New Zealand. That's how many people got a wage increase on Friday. And we've complained constantly about inflation and the cost of living on this podcast. So I thought it'd be disingenuous if I didn't raise this as, as my peak. Main benefit rates up 20 to 42%. If you're a couple on super, you've got another $80 a fortnight in your pocket. I also think it's a huge win for Arama Tamariki as well. Maintaining current levels of childcare assistance for parents as wages grow. That was another thing that they'd been touting on about for a little while there. Obviously, the government's going to preempt further cost of living spikes as we enter into the winter months. And I think it was a, a rightly timed announcement. We did know it was coming, so it's not like it's a huge piece of news or a big surprise it goes to show that the government is starting to realise that crunch time is no longer COVID-related. Crunch time is can you afford to pay your bills?
1: So uh, as a member of the Welfare Expert Advisory Group who recommended significant increases in welfare, obviously th- those increases were welcome because what we found during the study was that actually a lot of people just can't live on what we were paying as, as a community to those people who were less well off. But the government now needs to take into account all the other things it said it was going to do. More active labour market policies, more work to make sure that people don't remain unemployed in the dole queue for a long time because it, that's now worrying. And high. we know
0: post-COVID our long-term unemployment queue, whilst unemployment is low, the people who have been un- unemployed for over two years is Colossal,
1: And that's nothing to do with COVID. That's to do with government policy that doesn't adequately encourage yeah. them back into work with both some carrots and some sticks, frankly. There's an awful lot that was done that was good, but there's an awful lot that needs to be done. And just a quick word on the minimum wage. The challenge with the minimum wage now is, yes, we have the second highest, but it's a proportion of the average wage. So what you're seeing is that concertina of wages between the minimum and the average. And so the minimum wage now might apply to 300,000 people, let's say, but actually it influences the pay of probably a million And you shouldn't be doing that. You shouldn't be Mm. saying government will influence the pay for the workforce. What you should really be doing is trying to make sure that the minimum wage is low enough that it encourages employers to hire people, even in the tough times, and it allows others to move forward. So I'm not necessarily a fan of these very, very high minimum wages. I think they've got really bad impacts on labour markets uh, in the long term.
0: What would our intermediary solutions be then?
1: You've got to have a much more sophisticated view than simply say whack the minimum wage up. John Key did it as well. I would disagree mm. with him too. They just whack the minimum wage up because it was an easy thing for them to do. They're not paying it. Mm. They can just say, oh, it's this now. You nasty employers, you get on and pay it. What about the small businesses who are already battling to survive under a red traffic light, right here, right now, and you're saying to them, oh, by the way, your wage budget just went up by 6%. Oh, that's really helpful. Thanks mm. very much. And that really helps my competitiveness and my capacity to invest. So we need to have a balanced conversation about the role of skills, about getting people off the dole queue, about immigration, uh, and about how we build more productive, uh, more productive businesses. Just to say the answer is politicians beat their chests by putting costs on someone else, I don't think is the answer.
0: MB had to proactively release a paper there, which said, you know, this is going to have some pretty colossal impacts on prices, hours, staffing levels, given you know wage costs is occurring as we enter into a recession. Funnily enough, Michael Wood was actually pushing for minimum wage to go up to twenty one dollars forty, and the best he could get across the cabinet was twenty one twenty, which goes to show there will be more rises ahead of us. Well,
1: it also goes to show that this is a evidence free debate, mm. just the ideology of politicians and what they think plays out. Because as I say, they can they can say all that and look really heroic, but. That, that doesn't cost them a bean. They still get a job on Monday. So it costs the small business who is attempting to grow and attempting to employ people. That's what it costs. And we should just keep that in mind.
0: On that note, what's your pit of the week then?
1: In, this, in the context of some really interesting conversations I've been having globally over the last couple of days, it's a catastrophe what's going on there from a human perspective. But there's some really interesting developments from a business perspective as well. And it goes to show just how connected Europe is uh, and the world is with even the likes of the Ukraine. It might surprise you to know that free on gas, one of the largest supplies mm. of free on gas, is the Ukraine. You might surprise you to know that that Spanish uh, tiles, you know, the tiles you might see in bathrooms, come from Spain. The, the, the clay that they use to make those tiles uh, comes from Mariupol, Did which not is know currently that. under currently under attack. And one of the interesting things also is that is that as the European economy very much more dependent on Russia Russian gas and also Russian manufacturing capacity as well as the Ukraine it's causing massive disruption and massive difficulties for European businesses and that will have a play out to us as well one of the interesting things I was hearing about was the fact that the that the public pressure that there is to extend uh, the non-trading idea with Russia well past the sanctions everybody thinks in the when you read the media here the, the governments put some sanctions on and the businesses are complying with those sanctions Actually, they're being required through public pressure to go much further than that, to actually stop doing business in Russia altogether. Now, that's not what sanctions are for. Sanctions well, it comes are back about, to that
0: court of public opinion, right?
1: Well, precisely. But it's, sanctions are all about trying to punish dictators and punish Putin and his mates. They're not about punishing the Russian people. Mm. And, and if you have the wrong debate, you start punishing the Russian people, which actually pushes them into the arms of Putin and his cronies. So it's a, it's a very interesting debate we all need to have around the world about saying, when we say we're going to use the private sector to cause damage to these dictators, and I, I completely agree with the idea of that, by the way, I, no problem with that, how do we do it in such a way that we actually do target the dictators and we don't just, through the court of public opinion, have to punish everybody in Russia? Because I don't think anybody would seek to do that. The, the, the ordinary people of Russia had no choice or, or say in whether uh, this guy invaded the Ukraine.
0: No, but some would also answer that by punishing the people of Russia, you do punish Putin, because they could also go the other way, which is an ongoing yeah, global issue, the Absolutely. news coming out of that Absolutely. space as well.
1: When you read the New Zealand media, you might think that it's a, the, the, you know, the plucky Ukrainians versus the nasty Russians. Well, it's mm. much, much more impactful on that, not just for Europe, but also for us eventually, and, and uh, not just in inflation and the price of fuel and so on, but in all kinds of ways that, that just aren't obvious because of the interconnected nature of the world that we've all been working really hard to get to in the last 20 years. One of the interesting... The developments that may occur is you may see more Europeans wanting to come to New Zealand on holiday potentially because there's certainly a view in Europe that you know they they see New Zealand and Australia as safe havens uh, and so you know it's possible if we play our cards right that uh, some more Europeans will turn up in New Zealand for holidays this year than they might have otherwise.
0: It takes me very well to what I I probably consider my peak of the week, actually, and it is what is the tourism environment that those tourists are going to come back to. Now, the Auditor General this week, and I know I always come in with these lame reports, but this is a pretty important one, and I think it speaks to a lot of the review space going forward. The Strategic Tourism Assets Protection Program, now, you're going to remember this as a big slush fund that was announced in July. There was nearly $300 million that was going to go towards protecting strategic assets. Now, that fund has more or less been reviewed. What it's found is that the government gave themselves the opportunity to pick winners. They created a strategic fund there that had no criteria. So essentially, all that was the case is businesses had to say that that exhausted all other avenues of support. What that meant, they gave no clarity about. So for some, that was, okay, well, we've remortgaged the house, now we'll go knock at the door. Some, it was just the bank was unlikely to lend. There was no consistency, so consequently, a lot of businesses didn't apply. Not only that, but prior to announcing it, the government did not decide what a strategic asset was. They offered up massive grants to businesses before that even announced the fund. None of the ministers could say what criteria they were ranking the success of an investment against, It's an example of really poor public policy. We've got hundreds, if not thousands, of businesses across the country who should have and would have been eligible for support in a fair and just process had the government not have formed a system in which it could be highly politicised.
1: This is the terrible thing about that funding mechanism. Struggling tourism businesses would have been subsidising other tourism businesses.
0: Absolutely. And and not just... And they're their competitors. Exactly right.
1: And largely the people who got the money were the bigger businesses, Mm. as a matter of fact. So small van tours and winery tours guys would have been subsidising through their taxes the likes of some of the bigger guys. Now, that's not to blame the bigger guys. They did what they did. But it just demonstrates to your point, Mads, how important it is to have proper processes for the allocation of government money, no matter how urgent that needs to be, gee, you can lose faith in the public policy well, I don't process know. pretty you know, quickly.
0: I'm yeah. unsure what it will mean for Minister Nash, but it doesn't look good.
1: Well, I think one of the things that should keep us all much more comfortable about the state of our democracy is the fact that some guy, no doubt boring people in suits, Steve. called the Auditor General, had <laughs> a look at it all, and publicly reported that it was a crock. Because mm. you've got to be really worried if they spend all the money and nobody called them to account. Mm. and Everybody said, oh, nothing to see here. Well, is it, is it the Auditor General? Good for him. See it? Yes, there is something to see here. This is this is really bad. Everybody will have to do a review on that and work out what to do next time, and that's that's a good thing. And it's also public. We can talk about it on this very famous podcast, and that's I think that shows you that we do actually have a healthy democracy. Here.
0: I think so too. And it's it's actually the second example in less than a week. We've also had the COVID nineteen funding, thirty five million dollars there that they've got no idea how it was spent or if it's been successful spending. So yep, that's the advertising, stuff. Yep, yeah, that's yeah, the advertising yeah. stuff. I think we'll see similar stuff come out in and around the PPE space. No one holds anything against them for acting under urgent. We've got to be sure that everyone had a fair shot.
1: This won't be the last time that we get into these urgent needs for allocating government spending and so on we get them from time to time. So what I hope is that we all learn, not just as politicians and as officials, mm. but also those observing politicians, the public. I hope we all learn what good looks like so that the next time that happens, not suggesting that you won't get mistakes, but that that we get a better process, even if it's urgent, than the one we got there because of the learnings we'll get out of this. You'd hope.
0: Completely agree. And as our guest this week, we are joined by Pam Ford of Auckland Unlimited, who's going to have some very interesting thoughts to share in and around that tourism and investment space there. We do apologise, listeners. It is another interview over a Zoom box, but we promise we'll get back to -to face-to-face soon. Pam, tell us a bit about your role and a bit about Auckland Unlimited.
2: Oh, thanks, Maddie. Thanks, Phil. Um, pleasure to be with you. I'm at Auckland Unlimited, which is the Economic and Cultural Development Agency for Tāmaki Makaurau, and I have the privilege of working with a team who is all about how we attract talent investment, businesses and visitors, all the while ensuring that Auckland is a prosperous, inclusive place that is sustainable, that honours mana whenua and Matawaka and realises its potential as Auckland's international city.
1: That's really exciting. We work a lot together on some of those issues and the idea of realising Auckland's potential is such a key issue because we've done a pretty poor job of it as Aucklanders and as New Zealanders over the last 30-odd years. It could be so much better. When you think about how Auckland might accelerate out of COVID and become the great leader for New Zealand that that everybody knows it can be, what are you finding as you you look around the CBD of Auckland and you think about a post-COVID future there?
2: Well, you're right, Phil, Um, CBD has been devastated. I have been uh, loitering, walking about the CBD. A, it was good to see there are more pedestrians coming into the city than what there have been in the past few weeks, so that was a positive sign. One of the issues that we've been facing, like many city centres around the world is more obvious crime and so there was a presence I saw just police wandering around having a look around so that's a good sign normally city centre would have 140,000 workers and we've got a tiny tiny percentage of that that's the internal kind of domestic stuff we need to do but what we're really interested in is how we connect to the world we've lost those international connections we are very interested in how we connect back With our partner cities, we talked to Brisbane last week, um, linking into our good friends in the US and in Europe and UK and Southeast Asia. I think that's really, really critical. And then getting crews back ensuring that more of those international airlines that have suspended routes come back.
1: Of course, you've got the added problem now, and the whole of us do in New Zealand, really, that Ukraine now dominates the conversation. So it's even harder. That kind of outreach that you're talking about uh, becomes absolutely critical. Do Do you feel as though you're on the right track with it?
2: We've seen some demand for Auckland and New Zealand as a safe haven. So we have already seen some of that in a few sectors, which is interesting. I think our share of voice has been eroded. The perception from people offshore, certainly investors, have put New Zealand to the side. We've got a lot of work to do there. I'm sure it will help with some of the visits coming up and offshore missions. I can't encourage those enough. Really keen that we get our people offshore. And, you know, business has changed. We've got used to digitisation and that's been accelerated through this time. But companies still have to get offshore and have that face-to-face. And certainly, from my point of view, how we position Auckland as being open and a, and a great place to do business is really critical.
0: And there's that wider piece there as well, Pam, about how Auckland is the gateway to New Zealand. And where Auckland is thriving, New Zealand is thriving. Do you think there's enough of an understanding about how bringing back Auckland is critical to the success of the country?
2: Oh, it's a really good point, Maddie. You know, we're looking for positives out of COVID. The rest of the country, I think, did understand a bit more about the importance of Auckland. So when supply chains were affected because the ports were shut down or there were too many people sick, our border, oh my gosh, there was no mobility of staff. Those things did play out in a way I think was favourable for the country starting to understand that Auckland is significant. We thirty 38% of the GDP, 36% of the population. If we look at a, a sector such as tourism, we try to get away from that word gateway in that it is a destination in itself mm-hmm. and it is the financial destination of New
1: Zealand. When you think about um, Auckland, you've talked about investment because tourism's good fun and so's, you know bringing business people back and, and the employees back into the city. For me, a big big part about Auckland is the fact you've got a lot of pretty old subscale buildings around the CBD. How are you finding the role of people coming in to invest and perhaps uh, redefining Auckland a little bit, trying to get some tech uh, businesses going, that sort of thing? How are you Mm. finding, is there still an interest in investing in Auckland even post-COVID?
2: The short answer is yes. We've got some very interesting tech-based investor inquiries coming through and In terms of the buildings and repurposing, I think there are structural changes happening in property, in the way we work, in tourism, and a whole range of things. So, I do wonder whether that will lead to more residential into the city. So, we have lost residents in the city, um, but is there a chance to repurpose buildings and bring back some vitality in that way? And so, maybe we can become a bit more like some of those cities in Europe that we love—that is walkable, that is by the water, that has world-class nighttime economy and restaurants, and a really thriving population. The city rail link will transform things as well once that gets up and running in 2024. So there is a lot to look forward to, but I think we've got a—you know—we've still got a bumpy ride for the next couple of years.
0: You talk about, you know, that vitality and bringing vibrancy back to the city core. And I think a really big part of it is you've got to have people there to use the city. So you talk about yeah. bringing residential back in. You talk about the workforce within the CBD returning. What is the role of business to play, not only in bringing people back, but attracting people to stay?
2: I guess there's a couple of frames there. One is bringing their workers back. You we're saying getting together socially and gathering around a table is going to bring people back. So how can businesses encourage their own people back? And then we've got to ensure that we keep that structural side alive too. So all of that small business that provide amenity, those poor small businesses in central Auckland have had such a hard time. In terms of the visitor economy as well, ensuring that we have a thriving kind of business network for that visitor economy. There's a huge number of exciting hotels that have come up in the last couple of years, that have yet to realise their potential with their visitors from the Park Hyatt, Commercial Bay, Bretamart Hotel.
0: Phil thinks Hotel Britomart rooms are far too small for someone of his six foot five stature.
1: And, and my width. Um, <laughs> the the uh, one of the exciting new developments that will come on in the next year or two, of course, is the convention centre. If it doesn't burn yeah. down, again. it's going to be fantastic because the, some of the most high value tourism is that convention tourism. You know, the business conferences and medical conferences and so on. Yeah. What are you seeing from around the world about the regrowth of that? Because there's an argument that says they don't come back anymore because everybody's going to be on Zoom. It's an argument I disagree with. I think at senior levels, business is still a contact sport. You still need to shake a hand and conferences and seminars and so on have still got a bright future. What are you seeing as you think around the world globally and, and what's the future of the convention centre?
2: We are investing very much in our business event side. That's part of that visitor economy sector will return back more quickly than maybe mainstream tourism. Yep. Australia are going real hard on attracting yep. business events as they do on most things. And all of New Zealand will be really attractive for that business yep. events with Te in Christchurch and the Wellington Convention Centre. So the offering as a country, I think, to that sector is huge. And the more we work together on promoting the country as the destination, it will be beneficial. But I totally agree with you. I think we're going to see a good bounce back there.
1: In the depths of, of COVID, I remember some great work that Auckland Unlimited did around setting up a thing called Auckland Future Now, which was a series of discussions and, and a, a couple of conferences, and I was lucky enough to be a part of that process. As an outcome of that, there was some work that was commissioned by Sir Peter Gluckman, or for, you know, that Sir Peter Gluckman did with Two at Auckland University, these 10 provocations about the future of Auckland. You know, Auckland is a national park and so on. And the idea was to involve the whole of Auckland, not just the CBD, and future success and prosperity of, our, of that great city. I thought it landed pretty well when it came out. You know, What, what are you thinking about how it's landed in the public debate? What, what excites you about it? And, what, and how do you think it, we should take it forward?
2: Yeah, I'm very excited about that. It is a provocation. It's not a plan. It's putting things out there. And the response has been positive because it's aspirational. It doesn't mention the word COVID. It is about the future, which is what our work is all about. And so we're looking forward to the next Auckland Future Now Summit on the 24th of May, where we will bring in more people and continue that conversation. I'm a big proponent of how creativity can be an enabler in the creative economy supporting social cohesion through to growing our international competitiveness and weightless exports. So we're really going to use that report to base a number of our plans over the next, you know, 5, 10, 20, 30 years. This is something good that came out of COVID and we're using it as a a great mechanism to tap into um, our thinkers and our future leaders and bring them all together and see what we can do together.
0: Okay, and thanks so much for coming on to our show. Um, as is tradition on the podcast, we always finish with a hot or not. We're going to fire a couple of quick fire current events of the week at you. If you think they're a goodie, give it a hot. If you don't, give it a not. First on my list is a potential orange traffic light Easter. Hot. <laughs> uh, cannabis growing on the parliamentary lawn.
2: Not. Mm. Any from you? That you can, that yeah, you what about, what about
1: uh, the opening of Transmission Gully this week?
2: fantastic super hot
1: exactly
2: right i saw that the teslas were getting um too many um stones thrown up and affecting the very tender paintwork oh don't say that phil will have an opinion on a tesla (laughs) (laughs) it's
1: great to see you fam
2: thanks maddie thanks phil real pleasure
0: phil thank you for joining me and co-hosting in the studio today i do really appreciate it
1: it's a pleasure it's uh i I just I never understand what you guys are doing with these these little boxes and stuff on the table. So it's nice to play a part.
0: Well, you, you paid for them as yeah, well. Exactly. So, listeners, until
2: then, we'll see you next week.